Four years ago, we started this little podcast about the outdoors and America's public lands. And now, 90 episodes later, we are changing things up. Welcome to The Landscape from the Center for Western Priorities. I'm Aaron Weiss, and today we are saying goodbye to the name Go West Young podcast. We will explore why in an interview with two historians, Patty Limerick and Philip Deloria, about the legacy of Manifest Destiny. But first, let's do the news. A federal judge in Montana ruled that William Perry Pendley, the head of the Bureau of Land Management, has been illegally serving as the acting director of that bureau. The short version, and this is very condensed, is that the Trump administration has been flouting a law called the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. That law is supposed to stop a president from evading the Senate's advice and consent duties that are laid out in the Constitution. The lawsuit was brought by Montana Governor Steve Bullock. He specifically asked the judge to throw out two land use plans in Montana that opened up hundreds of thousands of acres of pristine land for oil and gas drilling. The judge's ruling was, to put it bluntly, brutal. He wrote, quote, The president cannot shelter unconstitutional temporary appointments for the duration of his presidency through a matroshka doll of delegated authorities. First off, props for working a Russian nesting doll metaphor into your ruling, Your Honor. The judge gave Governor Bullock and the Trump administration 10 days to give him a list of actions that he should throw out because Pendley has been serving illegally. Bullock cited the two land use plans I just mentioned and a third plan amendment that was also put in place under Pendley. But the governor also left the door open for more in his filing, noting that there could be other plaintiffs in other states that also identify illegal actions taken by or under Pendley, including policy changes, even oil and gas leases. It's not clear if that's going to happen here in this case or if other governors or conservation groups will cite this Montana ruling in other cases. But the implications are huge. If the judge's order holds, then anything Pendley has approved in any state could also get thrown out. Potentially, and this would be a ways off, of course, unraveling a whole lot of the Trump administration's damages to our public lands. Now, what surprised me was the administration's response, just filed late on Monday this week. Their claim comes down to an argument that William Perry Pendley hasn't actually done anything as the director of the Bureau of Land Management. Seriously, they wrote in the Federal Register that the BLM director had dismissed protest over those land use plans in Montana. But the Trump administration just told the judge, well, that's not true. It was actually an assistant director, not Pendley, who had dismissed the protests. So please disregard what we lied about in the Federal Register. In fact, Interior claims that William Perry Pendley has not resolved a single protest in any of the 27 resource management plans completed on his watch. Now, obviously, this raises the question of what the heck William Perry Pendley has been doing at the Bureau of Land Management for the last 400-some-odd days if he hasn't been working on these land-use plans. But it also creates a problem for Interior Secretary Bernhardt. Their entire argument for why everything they did was legal comes down to the judge accepting that the department lied in the Federal Register dozens of times when they said Pendley had dismissed the protests over the land use plans. Now that is quite the catch-22. Either it's illegal because Pendley took action, or it's legal because the final decision in the Federal Register is based on a lie. I am not a lawyer, folks, but even I can tell you that when you're asking a judge to ignore your previous lies, you are not on great legal footing. 
Now, I'm sure there's a lot more to come here. Knowing how slowly federal courts work, there is almost no chance that all of this gets resolved by next January. So the final outcome here and the future of dozens of land use plans across the West may come down to who wins in November. Today, we are renaming this podcast. It was Go West Young Podcast, which was, of course, a play on words that referenced Go West Young Man, a phrase associated with Horace Greeley and the concept of manifest destiny. And with that comes America's dark history of Native American genocide and mistreatment. And so it is time for us to meet this moment in America. And rather than just find a new name and move on, we wanted to have a conversation about Manifest Destiny and how its legacy still shapes the West today. Our guests are two of America's most important historians when it comes to the West. Patty Limerick is the chair of the board and a history professor at the Center of the American West at the University of Colorado. She has dedicated her career to applying historical perspectives to contemporary dilemmas and conflicts. She has been the Colorado State Historian. She is now on the Colorado State Geographic Naming Advisory Board, which will play an important role as Colorado rethinks the names of some of Colorado's landmarks. Patty, Professor Limerick, thank you for taking the time today. Oh, thank you very much. I've always wanted to be involved with your organization, so this is really a pleasure. Wonderful. And Philip Deloria is a history professor at Harvard University, focusing on the social, cultural, and political histories among American Indian people and the United States. He's taught courses on environmental history, on American Indian history, everything from food studies to songwriting. And he is also a trustee of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, where he chairs the Repatriation Committee. Professor Deloria, Phil, thanks for joining us. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by asking both of you for a very quick history lesson. And I recognize that this question could just eat up the rest of the podcast. But when we talk about Manifest Destiny, what are we talking about? When we talk about Manifest Destiny... We are talking in code about the fact that the United States started on the uh, Atlantic coast and then ended up extending to the Pacific coast with a lot of stuff in the middle. And Manifest Destiny, I think, is code for that, a process of territorial expansion. Of course, that is also what has now rightly come to the center of your attention. It is also the process of the invasion, conquest, displacement, and relocation of Indian people. So... Manifest destiny, uh, the term, was used by some people, some Americans in the 1840s. And yet what we consider the invasion, conquest, displacement of Indian people existed long before that term came into existence. So there was the, the impulse of territorial expansion was long preceding any particular term. And now we have some reasons to wonder if that term actually does represent a unified, clearly defined point of view. So I think that we're speaking of here, this process that gave many people opportunities they wouldn't have had, but also had some very disruptive, disturbing, um, devastating impacts on other people. And I think it's interesting that, you know, Manifest Destiny has, be, has emerged as such a dominant organizing principle for the ways that we think about the 19th century, the pre-Civil War period, um, you know, in particular, um, you know, that it's become, you know, um, like a trope, right? It's become a thing that we just say almost unreflexively, um, you know, so it's important to call it a little bit into question. At, at the same time, I think it does reflect because it is, you know, a trope. It reflects 
you know, the very real histories that also underpin this, which are, as Patty said, histories of dispossession. And you touched on this, Patty, that the, the idea was not necessarily a universal, universally agreed upon concept at the time or even a, a political consensus as much as uh, we are taught that or kids are taught that in, in history right. class today. Right. It is. This is an absolutely required unit of the teaching of history in the, in the public schools. And it often does come with a serious reckoning with the injuries done to Indian people in that. But my goodness, if you have a group of K through 12 teachers and you say, how many of you teach a unit on manifest destiny? Everybody's hand is, is up. And that's good news, except it's not entirely because it does have such a uh, blender effect of just taking a bunch of diverse movements and peoples and putting them, this is a horrible image of putting people in a blender, I apologize for that, but, but just taking all of this range of opinion and action and motivation and saying, there it is, it's all called manifest destiny. I think what uh, works is to realize that people in the white Americans wanted land and opportunity and resources, and they were quite determined to get it. Did they invoke God, who's a creator of a destiny? Uh, sometimes. Other times, no. They just took what they wanted. Uh, and then later, when it seemed like it might be a good idea to put some um, soft focus lens on that or to blur the, the sharp edges of injury. This is what I, I take from two fine historians, Drew Eisenberg and Tommy Richards, then uh, writing textbooks in the 1920s. Some folks thought, let's make more of that manifest destiny thing. And so that's really where that notion, this is what drove the nation. It took people and give, gave them a vision and they were servants to that vision, vision and they, I felt they were doing the right thing and uh, serving God's. So that seems like something that got cooked up quite a bit after the time period. Now, that sounds interesting because as we talk about uh, Confederate monuments in the South, those also seem to all appear right around that same time through the 20s. I mean, that seems like that's probably not a coincidence. Is that the time in which this revisionist history really started making the appearance across the country? I think Aaron's got a career as an historian. So <laughs> I totally agree. Like, what an intuition he has here. So do you want to take off on that early 20th century era? Um, well, it's, you know, this is a moment of sort of, you know, national consolidation. And I think it extends back, you know, into the later 19th century, you know, post-Civil War, people are having to rethink what the nation actually looks like. And as, you know, new economic regimes come into play and everything is contested, by the time you get to the early 20th century, uh, you know, people are ha having major rethinkings about how they're going to frame the story of the nation. And, you know, historians are fighting about it. And, um, you know, so it is part and parcel of a larger kind of narrative kind of reevaluation, right, that happens, you know, happens at that moment. So obviously, as we talk about Manifest Destiny and the taking of Native American land, we're talking about the interactions between American Indians and the United States. We're talking about treaties and treaty obligations that get broken. Uh, how, and I guess this is a question first for, for Phil, uh, since your your research focuses on that, how have those interactions changed over time through that, you know, uh, Vaseline on the lens of American history, looking at what Americans did versus what we're going to teach kids Americans did versus what we're going to reckon with now? You know, I think this is where, you know, um, 
your podcast, Go West Young Podcast, um, you know, and you're reframing this around, you know, we're going to get away from manifest destiny. You know, part of what you're getting away from is actually the go west part. And it's, it's interesting, right, that both manifest destiny and the saying, go west, young man, you know, have sort of taken on this life of their own. And they are both quite contested, right? It's not quite clear that Horace Greeley actually ever said that. Yes. And it's not quite clear whoever said it, you know. Um, but it's, I mean, I think it's really important to think that what westering looks like, and not just westering, but northering and even eastering if you're starting in California, um, mm. you know, and northering if you're starting, you know, down in the southern parts. I mean, so, you know... Um, uh, Howard Lamar, who was a um, teacher to both Patty and myself, right, used to talk about the implosion theory, right, of the West, of the peopling of the West. Um, and that might put a bit, a bit of a different spin on, on Manifest Destiny. I think there are, I've, I've sort of argued there's at least five major sort of regimes of land taking that take shape, you know, in the United States. And the, you know, the first really is a kind of continental scaled sort of thing. And it begins with treaties of land session and then I think there's a kind of regional uh, thing that happens with Indian removal, um, which goes hand in hand with American state formation. If you want to create, create Minnesota, you have to take all the native people that are there and either get them out of the state, right, or crunch them down into these little, you know, kind of isolated geographically, you know, removed sort of um, places. Then you take that reservation and you slice it up into 160 acre parcels, you know, and you bring in a whole bunch of white people and you desegregate it and you disaggregate it, um, you know. Uh, those are the three that really take shape over the course of the 19th century. And then in the 20th century, you have the Indian Reorganization Act, which is a different way of thinking about land and indirect rule. And then I think something that I hadn't really been thinking as much about, but I think there's an entire eminent domain kind of regime of Indian land taking, which we can see with, you know, uh, reclamation in particular, but also military kinds of bases. The Standing Rock, um, you know, example is one that might be, you know, linked to those sorts of, so it's those sorts of things. So, so American development, right, national development is completely and totally linked to, you know, the dispossession of Native peoples, um, you know, from start to finish. And I, that for me, that is the central fact, right, of, of this history that we're talking about. Patty, have you seen a change recently in how Colorado and Western states are reckoning with that? Or, or do you think there's still a long way to go? Uh I have had moments of feeling better and thinking, well, now look at what's happening here. This is going on. And, and those are authentic and, and important moments. I think uh, with the 150th anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado, 1864, and then 150 years. And then our governor had made a formal apology on the behalf of the state. He had created a, a serious commission to look at the legacy and to attempt better forums. We had a wonderful, we have now another wonderful person that people who've been executive director of our uh, state commission on Indian affairs have been great. Ernest House and now Catherine Redhorse, they have been great. And they have really had an impact on things like, uh, well, Ernest House led a really important group looking at, at, uh, at team names and mascots in Colorado and mm. one or two places held out. Well, perhaps more than one or two, but others said, what are we doing? And why are we doing that? So, so I, I have a basis for saying we're getting somewhere. Uh, there's a, there is a change in thinking. And then sometimes when I am really getting a little bit too far in the, well, the change has really come, I think, well, actually, no, uh, not all that I think I'm seeing. There's resistance. 
there's a sense of that uh, that old phrase politically correct or or that I wasn't alive in the 1860s so I don't see why I would have any responsibility for for that even though you're owning property that has a land title that you're not really reckoning with that so there's that and now I'm going to be very cruel to some uh, subsector of our population and say I actually think now in 2020 what I think I see is such a, a white liberal preoccupation. I'm totally overgeneralizing white liberal preoccupation with African-American injustices, injustices to them. And for heaven's sake, yes, of course, reckon with those African-American injuries and, uh, and deaths and discrimination, do that. But I see, I just think I see white liberals who think they've covered the territory there and who have not, who might have a rather abstract sense of injustices done to Indian people, but haven't taken that next step of thinking of looking at their at their need for their land and thinking, what's that about? So I, I'm a little uh, crabby, I guess, about the people who seem to think, yes, awakened, uh, very alert to, I've read various things on white fragility, I'm ready to go now. But what they know about the reality of Indian people I would say there's almost an unhappy echoing of the late 19th century idea of the vanishing Indian mm. that happened back then. They're very reduced in population. It's it's not central the way African-American issues are central. It becomes a, a romanticization of sorts. That can be a, a, a great way of dehumanizing people mm-hmm. is turn them into some uh, – Use, to just use the phrase noble savages to, to say how much you admired them. And I think this has died down a little bit. I have been in the company of people who with, I guess we'll call it innocence, just say, you know, I think I was really meant to be an Indian. I think if yeah. I had been an Indian in the 19th century, I would really. Have... Wow. Really? So, so I'm, but that that's romanticizing. And in a certain sense, you can say that's very positive to say, I would have liked to have been one of the displaced and relocated and, um, targets of genocide. That's, a, that's not what they're saying, obviously, but it's, it's certainly something that that phrase, we must educate people, is a lot harder to execute than it is to say, but there's a big opportunity there. I want to ask about another phrase, and that is tribal sovereignty, which is a term we use a lot. We toss it around a lot. It has meant a lot of things over the years, but uh, Phil, what uh, what do you think is the difference between what tribal sovereignty means in theory and and how it works in practice today? Well, that's an enormous that's an enormous <laughs> question. I, I think it I think it bears completely though on what Patty you know has just said, which is that you know I find it's very it's nice to hear people talking about you know by POC and or um, you know, but the the I in that phrase is very slender, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's very gestural, I think. There's a sort of sense of like, and, yes. And I, I just want to back up that the by POC, that's black and indigenous and people of color. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, um, and that's, it's quite a welcome thing, right? That indigenous is now sort of, it has this sort of place, but I think it is, it happens very quickly, right? You, the eye goes, goes, goes fast, you know? I mean, so people are quite willing to say, well, you know, there was that conquest thing. And then we get around to really talking about, you know, the real stuff that, you know, that kinds of matters. And so it's, it's gestural in that sense. And the, the stakes here are exactly about, about tribal sovereignty, right? Um, 
what the African-American narrative really leads us to is the story that moves from slavery to freedom, you know, to civil rights. And civil rights are really constituted as an individual liberal kind of thing, right? The liberal subject, that is to say, sort of small, you know, L, um, liberal, um, you know, and, but that, those are individual rights, right? And that is not what tribal um, sovereignty is about. Um, so for me, I think it's very, very important, you know, for us as Americans to, for example, if we're going to get ourselves together on this history, to go back to the U.S. Constitution and to go back to the three-fifths clause, which every student knows, and Patty will say this is part of the manifest destiny units, right? Which is like, my, my students, if I ask them about the three-fifths clause, they all raise their hands. They're quite eager because they've, they've studied this. They know what it is. But they just don't remember that there is a phrase in there that says, Indians not taxed, mm -hmm. right? Which is the beginning of Native people written into the American Constitution in order to write them out because they're seen at that moment as separate tribal sovereignties, right? And the same thing applies to the Commerce Clause, right? So the very beginnings of the United States, right, in the sort of legal way it imagines itself, um, leaves room for tribal sovereignty. And of course, you know, then it turns into a very complicated history over the course of the 19th century and different sort of tracks and trajectories towards trust on the one hand and sovereignty on the other and legal, you know, legal sort of lines of, of inquiry. But what we get to right today, you know, is the fact that tribes exercise sovereignty in very, very real and material kinds of ways. And if there's one thing that the COVID epidemic has shown has been both the vulnerability of Native people as a result of the histories that we've thought about, but also the, the power and the authority that rests with, with tribal sovereignty, whether it's throwing up tribal roadblocks or, you know, uh, running uh, tribal health, um, you know, kind of enterprises. I mean, this is where it is all, you know, kind of located, um, you know, today. Well, I, I think that is a good opportunity to move into where we are today, where we still see tribal communities that disproportionately lack access to good health care, lack access to the Internet, confronting epidemics related to opioids, murdered and missing indigenous women, and now, of course, COVID-19. So where is the U.S. government in terms of upholding those treaty obligations? Have they been abandoned? Is it Has it been a constant ebb and flow in terms of of the U.S. upholding its obligations? Uh, may I just come in for a second Please. on that one? Because uh, nothing that you said there was inaccurate, and yet it was certainly very, uh, very grim and very mm -hmm. dark. And there are some great successes. And uh, I'll just go with the one obvious one of tribal colleges. Tribal colleges are, if you visit one of those, you think, well, look what's happening here. And it's, it's quite remarkable how much... Uh, some economic enterprises, some, uh, well, hospitality industries aren't doing so well, but the moment, but hotels and there's warm springs. I mean, there's lots of places where things are really happening and uh, that should not take our attention away from the injuries and the lingering uh, injustices and so on. But I just wanted to come in and, and say that, well, Richard Rodriguez, who's not everybody's uh, favorite writer, but I like him very much. And he used that phrase once that Indian people will finally be uh, driven from the scene with a sharp tool called an alas. Mm -hmm. Enough people, non-Indians, exclaiming alas. The poor Indian. <laughs> That's, it's, it's its own form. I mean, it's, it's quite a thing that the image of the noble Indian is really a way of dehumanizing and the endlessly suffering Indian is, uh, and, and those, 
there's suffering and there's nobility and there's all of that. And they, and they come in the combination that human beings often present that mm-hmm. it's just, it's uh, quite varied. So just to say a word, and I'm not saying it all came out without serious inequities. And so I'm not saying that, but I am just saying, um, not lighten up, but I mean, there, just, there are just, success I, stories to acknowledge. And I'm just going to say that the writing world, uh, and that's not the, it's important and it has cultural impact eventually, but the, the quality of, of uh, the novels just in the last year, I mean, in fact, boo-hoo, Amazon brought me three of them yesterday and I don't know when I will get to read them because I cannot keep up with the a dynamic literature of Indian people. So just to say that, and then I'll let, I'll let uh, Phil take on the standing of the U.S. government on these issues now. How about if you do that one, Phil? Oh, thanks so much. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I think what's interesting here, right, is that, um, you know, if we go back to the 1830s and, you know, some of these key legal cases, right, we get domestic dependent nations, we get, we get a thread which is about sovereignty, and we get a thread that is about trust. And, you know, I have spent much time with my students, you know, who say, oh, if you're a sovereign nation, why are you expecting the government, right, to you know, uphold these obligations that are century old, or alternatively, oh, if you would like the government to uphold all these things, why do you claim to be sovereign? But, but the fact is, these things are simultaneous and, and true and fundamentally true. And what's been really interesting in the development over the last, you know, century or, you know, sort of 50 years, maybe, is the ways in which tribes under the policies of self-determination, right, have taken on trust obligations as sort of subcontracting or contracting kind of services as part of sovereignty. And it's, it's really, you know, quite interesting the ways that the things are com- coming together in that sort of sense. My colleague, Joe Kalt, you know, who crunches numbers on these things, basically says, if we think about the CARES Act, which set aside $8, um, $8 billion for Native people, um, you know, as part of that kind of municipal state sort of thing, people are like, oh, my gosh, why $8 billion for them? Well, what Joe, you know, has basically figured out is there's about $16 billion a year that goes into the, the federal coffers out of various forms of direct and ind- indirect tribal enterprises. So, so basically, once again, Native people are getting kind of half of what they, you know, put back in. But the fact is, right, is like those native economies, like all these other economies, needed cash to be flowing through them. Um, you know, so that was an exactly right thing to do to place money in that. Of course, as usual, the government has a hard time figuring out how that money should flow and, you know, who should get it and how it should be allocated. And is that about geography? Is it about population? Um, you know, uh, how do those things work? I'll just say one last thing about this. I just did an assignment with my class where I sent ask everyone to go and look at a tribal website around sort of COVID management. And, you know, they came, basically we came back and as a class, what we're able to sort of see is, you know, an extraordinary amount of capacity, actually, not just liability, but capacity for managing um, these kinds of things. And, you know, some of the, you know, smartest and quickest management, you know, off the mark of COVID was actually tribal management, you know, so that part is also there. And I think it is, as Patty said, it's important to acknowledge that as well. Uh, I want to ask you about, I want to ask you both about your, your personal experiences. Um, Patty, right now you're on, on this board that is examining uh, naming of geographic locations in Colorado how has your experience as a historian uh, informed the work that you're doing now as considering what, what spots in Colorado need to be renamed and what should they be renamed to? Well, uh, I, well, if I were to answer that, I would be scolded by the 
Oh, can't, can't, can't answer directly yet. Okay. Uh, more, more broadly than that. Yeah. The process. I, I can say things. Uh, I can, I can say something about how different state organizations are on this. Yes. Are, there are things I can say. Okay. Sorry. I just had a moment of uncharacteristic inarticulateness. And <laughs> I'm over that. So, so the, the board, the uh, geographic naming advisory made the governor called us into existence we had lapsed and did not have one as a state and now we have one and it's a good group and i feel very good Catherine redhorse who i mentioned before from the uh, commission on indian affairs the director she's with us so it's going to be good and we will do careful deliberations and considerations uh, the place where i think i can speak is with the sand creek massacre because i did do a long report in uh 1987 on a building not a geographic feature so i am not going out of my train on this, I'm talking about a building that was named after a participant at Nichols Hall, David Nichols, who was a, uh, an officer there. And we had a building named after that. And so that was a wonderful opportunity for me to really wrestle with the, when do you change the name? And when do you say we should keep the name so we don't get amnesia? So and, and what was the outcome there at Nichols Hall? I initially thought we should keep the name and keep the reckoning so that we did not seem to be walking away from this dreadful episode in history. Then, as I contemplated more and more, that that building was named in 1961. It was an existing building that had to have a name change. So it is not a very, you have bureaucrats in a tizzy in 1961 looking for some old bird who had something to do with the university. <laughs> I don't know what important historical lesson. It could be very important for all I know, but it didn't seem like an occasion to bring freshmen to the building and say, here is a place where some bureaucrats were in a tizzy. And so, so it seemed like given the, the gap, and that's, that's the case with many of the memorials and was, the memorials came at a very different era. So why are we... Well, okay, so the building, uh, after much deliberation on part of the regents, and after much uh, kicking me around like a football in the press with different uh, people saying that I was prejudiced against white people, or white men, sorry, just you, just you, Aaron, and sorry, uh, anyway, it's been, <laughs> so after much of that, the name Nichols Hall was dropped, and uh, after a little bit more deliberation, it became Cheyenne Arapahoe Hall. Now, this is a cautionary tale in itself, because Cheyenne Arapaho, that's what its name is. The non-Indian students who have no idea about where this came from, and I'm not faulting them because they get no opportunity to learn, they call it Shiho. So Interesting. The point was to have a respectful recognition of historical legacies and so on, and Shiho isn't there. I took a group of students there once, and a woman who worked in the, in the uh, sort of dining area there was coming into work. She was, it turns out, uh, native uh, i think she was arapaho and so she told us that that that's hard for her to hear mm -hmm. I mean, what well i say so so it's to say okay now we're going to reckon with the names yes but there is a much broader uh, much has to be much more dynamic process of public communication and engagement i'm not going to say education but really using everything we have of of uh, digital media and so on to say that's what this name Indicates and so speaking of Nichols Hall, I I know from that it's not just enough to say it used to be X and now it is called Y. It's really if we're going to do that kind of reckoning, there's a much broader process and it never ends. The process of remembering why the name changed and what the new name means that's something that people have to dedicate themselves to into posterity. I think. 
Phil, you you grew up around Indian politics. Your father was the director of NCAI, the National Congress of American Indians. Your your grandfather, I believe, was a native Episcopal priest. So how has your personal experience shaped your perspective now as, as a historian and a teacher? Uh, well, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, you know, uh, it's it's been really interesting for me. You know, it's, it's um, I mean, 2019 was the 50 year anniversary of Custer died for your sins. And as Patty knows, as a sort of host of a you know very large and quite wonderful meeting at, at CU last year, um, you know, I've had the chance this, you know, this year to sort of reflect um, very self-consciously and purposefully right on the sort of legacy aspects, right. Of being Vine Deloria's son, um, you know, and it's, um, you know, I, I started as a music person, right? Because I was edibly fleeing, you know, the legacy of my father and found myself looping back around. And he would have said this is part of a kind of, you know, multi-generational sort of obligation of our family, um, you know, and, and he would have said, yeah, see what happened? You tried to go in another direction and it just wasn't going to it just wasn't going to play out because you were kind of meant to come back around to that. So that's an interesting place to sort of, you know, see yourself, Um uh, it does seem to me, I mean, I have had an increasing tendency to see myself in terms of fulfilling certain obligations that were made by people who are not me, mm. you know, and, and situations that I didn't have anything to do with that were old and historical and sort of spiritual, you know, um, and, you know, so that, so it's interesting to sort of think about that in relation to being a historian, right, and sort of, um, you know, trying to bring that kind of you know, that kind of historical sensibility, um, you know, to bear. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, my dad, you know, particularly in his last years, I mean, my dad was always a very, very adventurous intellectual person, right? I mean, there's a whole collection of his writings or writings about him, you know, called Destroying Dogma. And it's, it's the more I think on this, the truer it is, right? It's like, if you said something was true, you would say the opposite, you know, just, just to, you know, if you say the sky's blue, you'd be like, Nah, it's orange, you know, and he would, and he would go from there. And, you know, and in some ways, this has been really part of his legacy, you know, has been his willingness to sort of um, antagonize and, and provoke. And, you know, um, I, I just did over the last year or so also a sort of almost 25 year anniversary look back at his book, Red Earth, White Lies, where he really went after scientists and, 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 and in part said a couple of things that were, you know, so anti-dogmatic, they were kind of crazy, like, you know, Indians in the Stegosaurus kind of moving through the same landscape mm. at the same time. And, you know, but he was an Indian creationist, right? So he, um, he could conceive of something like that in a way that I, you know, can't really sort of intellectually. But the fact is, his core arguments in that book, right, um, and his core arguments about the Bering Straits theory and the peopling of, the, of North America and the Americas have been proven to be pretty much right. You know, his critique has been proven to be more or less on the mark, you know. So, um, so you know, I find myself curating, coming out of a position of sort of thinking, curating some of my dad's thoughts and my grandfather's thoughts and, you know, my great aunts, um, Ella and Susie, and actually my last book is all about Susie's art. And, you know, so it is a family legacy that sort of sticks. Fascinating. All right. We just have a, a couple minutes left. So I want to ask both of you very quickly as professors who have students coming into their class, what is the one thing you wish that students today going into college understood better about America's Western history and Native American history? Uh, okay. I guess I will say that 
the uh, singular noun, the Indian, mm. is really a problem. And it and often attached to that, that's a little bit plural sometimes, what we did to the Indian. Mm -hmm. uh, I, so when those things get actual human meaning attached to them, at, when that happens, the Indian is not going to be uh, coming up very often because you'll be you'll know that you're talking about different tribes and you'll know that it's better to uh, think of the name of the tribe that you're speaking of rather than to generalize it I mean, the white man to whom I'm speaking. I mean that's just that's a form of nonsense in, in most other situations, but that generalization thing has really gotten out of control and that entirely not vanished. I mean, I'm just going to take one person that if uh, his work is so, speaking of contrarian and so on, uh, Will Wilson is a Navajo fellow who, who studied the uh, Curtis, Edward Curtis photographs that make Indian people, uh, that was maybe not Curtis's intention entirely, but the Indian people look like they're vanishing. They're, they're sepia colored and they're going away. Uh, Will mastered that technique and he can take photographs of people in the 21st century. Uh, he's been doing some with white folks. So he took a photograph of me and as he was, as he was uh, developing it, I, my skin was getting darker. I said, well, my skin is, I didn't, that must be the whole thing that, that Curtis was using that did that. And he said, so Will looks at that and he goes, I'm indigenizing North America one white person at a time. <laughs> if you haven't looked at Will Wilson's work sometime, you should, because he takes these photographs of, uh, most of them are of Indian people today, but because he's using the Curtis technique, they will look like they are ancient figures, even though they're the uh, banker or reporter or attorney down the street. So uh, so it's, it's really, really interesting. And he's done a whole strange and interesting series of, images of himself where it's it's him as a uh in more traditional curtis-like clothing and so sorry i'm still i'm going to stop rambling about will wilson but do you know will i do know will i you know i mean aaron this will wilson stuff is really amazing i mean what it really does reveal is like those copper colored indians in all the curtis stuff are completely an artifact of the technology huh. you know and so he'll take this sort of red-haired irish you know, Irish freckled woman. And like, she, it's, she's so dark that you can't, you know, so it's all about the racialization that goes with the technology. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. It's, yeah. Just go to his website. It's really good. But I wanted to have just, uh, I don't know, 18 seconds just to say what that whole point was that, um, that with Will Wilson, so many brittle stereotypes, just, they just, they just fall down. Hmm. I mean, they're just they're so they're so brittle and they're so unrealistic. And I guess I don't care what delivery system gets to a young person who might who will come into the room with many uh, might be from Western movies. I mean, who knows where it where it comes from? But to have that just that moment of oh, complicated people still with us. Oh. That doesn't seem like an incredibly deep insight, but I have seen the absence of that recognition in not just 18 to 22 year olds, but people of many, uh, non-Indian people of many ages. And so just, just that, the first time I went to a conference of mostly, actually that's I think where I met Phil's father, uh, at the a conference in Sun Valley in 1983. 1981 was the first time I met him. But anyway, there were at this one conference, there were almost all Indian people there. And then uh, I, had a uh, 
travel agent that wasn't the best. So I was leaving the next day. All the Indian people left the conference. I was like the only one still there uh, who had attended the conference and a bunch of golfers came in for a golf tournament. So I was chatting with a couple of them in the bar later that evening. And again, I think almost everybody from the conference but me had gone. And a few golfers, this is 1981 when this conversation occurred. I said, they said, what were you doing here? I said, oh, I was here at a conference on American Indian people. And, and, the, and those people said, are there still Indians? Wow. Huh. And um, I don't know. I mean, that, and I, I don't think I would ever hear anything quite that stupid again. But are they still real Indians mm -hmm. might be the implied sure. statement. Of, yeah. if, it's, if this person is an attorney or a banker or a reporter or a professor. Are you still, are, so, or do you count as an Indian somehow if, if you're, uh, yes. If you're not uh, on horseback uh, hunting buffalo mm. at this price in this particular moment, or if you're not in a, a canoe, uh, the Pacific coast. Uh, so, so just a real sense of, we know what authenticity is and we're going to enforce those standards. It's pretty weird to see how that persists. And I would like to see it. Phil, Phil, same question to you. Is there an an aha moment for for your students sometimes? You know, I mean, I, th I think there's probably a couple of ones that really stand out for me. I mean, one is this thing that I sort of was talking about before that, um, you know, a basic sort of aha moment around sovereignty um, as a collective political kind of right, as opposed to the individual rights that every student seems to think is part of, you know, the only way of thinking about you know, American history, right? I mean, and so the African-American narrative, which is a good narrative and a strong narrative, but it also it has subsumed the immigrant narrative. You know, what does the immigrant want? Ah, just wants citizenship rights, you know? I mean, so the rights of the individual are completely the thing that's in the foreground of students' minds and, and sort of getting them to think, no, 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 there's another sort of way of thinking about this, a collective rights. Um, and that actually might be quite useful for us, you know, in the present moment. I mean, that, that tends to be one. And I think the second one is sort of um, also a version of what Patty has said, which is there is this amazing moment when, you know, students realize that like native contemporary music and food and literature and film and new media and sports and is like incredibly cool and smart and, you know, vibrant and future focused and, you know, because they do come out of this place where, like, they're not necessarily thinking there are no Indians, but they don't really have this sense of just how lively and vibrant and generative, you know, Native cultures are, um, you know, in the present moment, and the ways in which they very, very productively link those things, you know, to Native pasts. If I could do a, a local Colorado booster moment here, uh, on our faculty here at the University of Colorado, we have Stephen Graham Jones who's a leading uh, science fiction and fantasy writer. And goodness, goodness, it's almost, he, he's very productive, very prolific. But I would just recommend one of his books in particular, Lead Feather, which I don't think is very well known. And it is about uh, uh, an Indian agent in the 19th century and who's not completely disappeared from kind of a ghost-like figure and a, and a boy, an Indian boy who is in some... Uh, a contemporary person is very dynamically involved in that. It's just, to me, it's one of the great acts of compassion because Stephen Graham Jones is actually not making a parody of the Indian agent, of the white Indian agent. He's really understanding more of that 
strange world of the of the bureaucracy. But it's just it's such a I think a, a book like that. I'm just picking one, and it is a be true to your school moment because Stephen Graham Jones <laughs> is here. Um, but any any one of those kinds of books, and that's the moment of oh. And I think it's quite right. It's not that people would say there aren't Indians, but they wouldn't know the dynamicness and the uh, vitality and the robustness of so on. All right. I will leave it there. I will ask both of you to email me some some links to some recommended reading then. We'll put that in the show notes for folks to listen to and continue the conversation that way. Patty Limerick is a history professor and chair of the board of the Center of, of the American West at the University of Colorado. Phil Deloria is a professor of history at Harvard University and a former student of Patty Limerick's. Thank you both so much. I just love this conversation so much. Uh, appreciate both of you taking the time today. Thank you, Aaron. Thank, Thank you, Aaron. Yeah. And you too, Patty. Always good to see you. It's really fun. Really fun. Well, that is it for this first episode of The Landscape. We did keep the music the same, though. You notice that. Uh, I just want to acknowledge the folks along the way who pointed out that the old name of this podcast didn't send the message that we wanted to send as an organization. And I hope that the content we produce and the guests that we have on here will continue to reflect the diversity of today's West. It is something I am very proud of, but also something I never want to take for granted, and this podcast will always be a work in progress. So with that, I'll remind you to keep sending in your feedback, good, bad, or otherwise, podcast at westernpriorities.org, or you just find me on Twitter, I'm A. Weiss. Thanks again to Patty Limerick and Philip Deloria for that fabulous conversation about the legacy of Manifest Destiny. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening these last four years and 90 episodes. Here is to the next 90 with a new name.